Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. On Shakespeare's death, his cantankerous rival Ben Jonson paid him a compliment that continues to define our attitude towards him. He was not of an age, but for all time. Shakespeare's talent was so rare, that extraordinary output of 37 or 38 plays, the profound ability he had to illuminate the human condition in exquisite verse, his time-transcending stories, his great characters, his inventive turns of phrase, all of them make it easy to think of him as a man out of time. But he was born in a rural market town in the early years of Elizabeth I's reign, and he was formed by the social, religious and political worldview of the period. His art was written to meet the commercial demands of the flourishing theatre culture of London in the 1590s. His heyday was the last decade of Gloriana and the prefatory years of James I. The time period we're talking about starts with Shakespeare's birth in 1564. We know he started writing plays in the 1580s or 1590s. The first one performed was Henry VI Part One in the Rose Theatre in April 1592. And towards the end of his life, his last new play to be performed was Henry VIII, All is True, or The Two Noble Kinsmen, both collaborative works with John Fletcher and performed in 1613-14. to 14. The Tempest, 1611, was his last monograph play. He died in April 1616. So to examine Shakespeare's world, the world that seeps into his plays, is to consider some 25 to 30 years 15 years either side of the turn of the 17th century, a time of huge demographic, social, economic, religious, and cultural change. That's what we're going to think about together today. Let's start by wandering through Shakespeare's world. London as he would have known it when he arrived from Stratford-upon-Avon in the 1580s. Little would be familiar to the London visitor today. The only thing that is unchanged is the Tower of London. If you approached from the west, on the Roman road of Watling Street, the first thing you'd see would be Tyburn, the gallows for hanging criminals. Naked bodies would hang there after their execution for a day or two. It's a pretty ominous sign as you first approach the city. The city itself, of course, would be in the distance. The road was bordered by fields up to Tottenham Court Road. You'd go straight through the village of Hoburn and cross the bridge over Fleet River 
and into the sprawling mass of houses that had erupted around the city walls. The city walls themselves were 18 foot high. You'd go through the crenellated gatehouse of Newgate. If you came from the south, you'd have to cross the only bridge for miles, London Bridge. It was 800 feet long, 60 feet high and 30 feet wide. It was made up of 18 solid stone piles built on so-called starlings, low, flat pillars of stone shaped like boats, which forced the currents of the tidal river into channels. It was very dangerous to cross. Something like 50 watermen a year died trying to do so. London Bridge was topped with shops and four-storey houses. These were the homes of prosperous merchants. And at one end was Great Stone Gate, with traitors' heads, parboiled and tarred on spikes. If you approach London from the north, you'd enter along the Great North Road. And frankly, your first sight would have hardly been less lugubrious. It would have been Smithfield, the livestock market. It had weekly fairs, though none was as grand as the annual St Bartholomew's Day Fair on the 24th of August. But it was also a site of execution for humans. Once you were in the city proper, the houses were tightly packed. Streets were 12 to 15 foot across. Alleys were dark, with overhanging houses blocking out the light. And they would stink with the smell of poor sanitation. But there were also the bright, wide streets with the expensive houses on. Some roads were gravelled, others were clay all year round, which meant they got muddy when it rained. And you'd have seen people with a variety of occupations. People like merchants and hawkers, street vendors, even acrobats. And the noise, it would have been a real cacophony, not just from the people and the animals, but also from the abundance of churches, Church bells were how you told the time in Tudor England. The inspiration for this introduction to London comes from Ian Mortimer's The Time Traveller's Guide to Elizabethan England. If you want to go back in time and imagine yourself there, have a look at that. Now, unlike modern London, there was not much ethnic diversity. Edward I had expelled all the Jews from England in 1290, which is why Shakespeare doesn't call it the Merchant of London. But black faces were not unknown. Miranda Kaufman, in her book Black Tudors, has found some 360 black Africans in the sources in London between 1560 and 1640, just about the time we're talking about. Elizabeth I had a little blackamoor, and parish registers testified to marriages between Africans and English. And whilst Kaufman's number may seem very small, that clearly is the tip of the iceberg, because people appear in those records when they do things like decide to get baptised. So, for example... She talks of Mary Phyllis, who was born in Morocco in 1577, who came to England at the age of six or seven and was the servant to the Barker family in London in the parish of St Olaf's Hart Street, where Pepys would live later. She's not even the only African in the household. There are two others. So Othello may not have been the first black face that Shakespeare's audiences had seen. Unlike the rural world that Shakespeare had come from, this was a closely built world of human artifice. People would have been amazed at the size of the population. London in 1600 had something between 200 and 250,000 people, small by comparison to the many millions today. But at the time, the vast majority of the population lived in the countryside. 
In fact, only 5% of the population lived in communities of more than 5,000 people. Today, in the UK, 90% of us live in cities. That is to say, towns of more than 50,000 people. So vast, and here I quote Peter Lazlett, that none of our ancestors would recognise his surroundings as human. London was the only town in England at that time that was bigger than 50,000 people. So however small we might think their population was, Shakespeare's contemporaries were terrified at how big it was and how rapidly it was increasing. And they were justified in this because back in 1525, from what we can calculate, the population of England was probably around 2.3 million. So in 75 years, it had more than doubled. The population of London had been around 60,000 it had almost quadrupled. And this is despite the fact that most people, i.e. not the aristocrats that we have in Romeo and Juliet, more mechanicals, most people married late. That is, around the age of 28 for men, around the age of 24 for women. Women had to save money for their dowry. So from the age of 13 years old, they were saving for 10 or 15 years to put that aside. Men needed to create an autonomous household at marriage, and so they, as a teenager, went into an apprenticeship or into labour. Shakespeare's marriage to Anne Hathaway, when he was 18, was surprisingly early. Anne, at 26, was nearer the norm. And it was also very normal that she was pregnant at the time. 20 to 25% of brides were pregnant, but illegitimacy rates before marriage were low. And this is because there was no reliable or appealing contraception. The options were a sheath of a pig's bladder or intestines or herbs to bring on one's period. So we see low illegitimacy rates and bridal pregnancy. And that tells us much about the extreme moral and social stigma of illegitimacy. Sex generally took place within marriage or within the context of an intention to marry. Once married, women in Shakespeare's world were, on average, pregnant every two years. Professor Lyndall Roper, who has been on this podcast before, has talked about the fact that the voluptuous, fecund image of a pregnant woman guided the aesthetic. Having a child every other year, from the age of 24 or so, meant six or eight children before the menopause, if, of course, you didn't die first. 25 women out of every thousand died in childbirth. The figures today, in the UK at least, are 8.2 maternal deaths per 100,000 births. It was even worse for the infants. Between two and 300 children died out of every thousand in the first year of life. In other words, around a quarter. Another quarter died between the ages of one and 10. And this distorts the life expectancy estimates. If you made it to 20, you might well make it to 60 or even 80. Think of William Sissel, Lord Burley, who made it to 77. But nevertheless, the population as a whole was younger than ours. And that meant that it was less sanguine, more boisterous. And there were certainly some challenges with making it even to 60. There was a lot of epidemic disease. Many diseases were fatal. Dysentery, typhus, smallpox, malaria, typhoid fever. But two diseases were especially prominent. 
One was a fearful new disease that affected the loins, a sexual disease that had first broken out in 1494 in the army of King Charles VIII of France, which had been recently occupying Naples. The French called it the Neapolitan disease. Everyone else called it the French disease. It commonly came to be known as the Great Pox, in contrast to the small pox that came from smallpox. And it affected the high and the low. Francois I of France, for example, is thought to have suffered from it. When the disease first broke out, it was fearsome and extraordinarily painful, causing its sufferers to scream with pain all day and night. Thankfully, the disease mutated. After seven years or so, it turned into a somewhat milder form. But by all accounts, the pain continued to be excruciating. One sufferer said, if anything may cause a man to long for death, truly it is the torment of this sickness. In 1530, it was given a classical style name, which has become the name by which we know it today, syphilis. The other great epidemic of the time, no other epidemic could approach its lethal rate, was plague. Plague gripped the imagination because although more infants died than people died of the plague, as an epidemic, its scale was unmatched. Its lethality rate by the 16th century was between 60 and 80%. Its closest rival, smallpox, killed 15 to 20% of the population when it struck. In Lyon, in 1528-30, half of its population of 70,000 died. 20% of those affected died within 24 hours. The others died within five days. And then there is the sheer awfulness of the symptoms. One account says this. The man stricken with plague experiences continual vomiting and retching, a strange lack of appetite, an extreme fever. The insides, even the head, seem to be burning with pain, while all the external parts are frozen. The lower belly is all swollen, the stomach tight. He is seized with anxiety and cannot sleep, yet is endlessly drowsy. His face changes completely, his eyes become red and wild, his temples drawn, his nostrils enlarge, his nose becomes pinched, the mouth which exudes a cadaverous odour hangs half open, his tongue goes dry and black, his lips turn leaden. He's afflicted by bouts of great thirst, he finds breathing difficult, his skin becomes spotted with red, violet and black pustules and marks, and he's tortured by abscesses in several spots as his body becomes covered with buboes or painful tumours and other horrible symptoms. I've got a picture in my head of a man sitting there writing down this description while someone in front of him suffers painfully. These buboes, these painful great tumours in the neck and the armpit and the groin were so painful that sufferers cried out for them to be cut out. And this is in the age before anaesthesia. It has been calculated that in England the plague broke out roughly once every 16 years. And the particularly awful thing about the plague was that it was arbitrary in who it attacked. Robustly healthy adults died of the plague as often as the old and the frail and the young and the vulnerable. The rich died as well as the poor. No one knew what caused it. The annals of the College of Physicians in 1563 noted that the plague was preceded by an epidemic of wood lice. A report to the Royal Society in the 17th century remarked on the extraordinary number of spiders which had appeared the year before the plague struck Danzig. There's even an account of a young boy at Eton in the 17th century being thrashed for not smoking his pipe because tobacco was thought so effective a preventative of plague. This was also a time of dearth. 
one in four harvests was poor. If you got two or three or, God forbid, four consecutive failed harvests, that meant famine. Most generations therefore experienced dearth at some point in their lives. It's difficult to exaggerate the extent to which people at this time feared starvation. The fear of harvest failure and food shortage made life feel profoundly insecure. Famine, in other words, was a spectre haunting Shakespeare's contemporaries. The whole period, of course, is known as the Little Ice Age. The winters were much colder than they are now. Canals and rivers froze deeply enough for skating and winter festivals like the Thames and the Frost Fair of 1607. But the 1590s had especially bad weather conditions. Titania, to Oberon in Midsummer Night's Dream, blames the unseasonable weather for their falling out. The winds, piping to us in vain, as in revenge, have sucked up from the sea contagious fogs, which falling in the land hath every pelting river made so proud that they have overcome their continents. The ox hath therefore stretched their yoke in vain, the ploughman lost his sweat, and the green corn hath rotted ere his youth attained a beard. The fold stands empty in the drowned field, and crows are fatted with the Morian flock. So the first decade in which Shakespeare was known as a playwright was a time of socio-economic disaster. The harvests of 1593 and 94, 1596 and 97 failed. This was a time of famine. But despite these high rates of infant mortality, this epidemic disease and this threat of famine, the population went on growing. And this put even more pressure on resources. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. It's a time with this rising population of inflation and especially an inflation of food prices, and among those prices, particularly the price of bread. 
and this led to a massive structural change. Most peasants at the time were tenants. In the early 16th century, most tenants had held their land through customary tenure, which is to say the land belonged to freeholders who leased it to tenants who were leaseholders, and the tenants had a fixed and low annual rent. But from the mid-16th century, landlords facing inflation and a rising demand for land sought to change tenancy agreements to contractual leasehold tenure. So tenants had to renegotiate their tenancy for fixed periods of time in an open market. The lord got the best rent he could and was under no obligation to the previous tenant and could revise the agreement when the lease expired. Now, this might seem perfectly normal to us, but it didn't to contemporaries. It seemed like robbery. It seemed like rich men were profiting from the impoverishment of others. These were known as rack rents because the tenants were being stretched as far as they could be. And it was accompanied by enclosure, especially the enclosure of common lands. I remember once going to a lecture with Professor Andy Wood and him talking about the fact that common lands were used to graze animals, to collect firewood, bracken, herbs, berries, nuts, mushrooms and nettles, and that this opportunity to gather wild food could be the difference between hunger and sufficiency. But in the late 16th century, landlords were enclosing common lands to make profits, to protect themselves from inflation. So whereas poor peasants had been able to gather firewood and forage for wild berries and graze the odd cow in the earlier part of the 16th century, they now lost this vital resource. It was seen at the time as the Lord stealing the common lands. It led to a situation of differentiation between different people and social tension. And it's not just between lords and peasants. Within villages, richer farmers were able to engross their lands. They could acquire lands that in previous generations had belonged to smaller farmers. This is the rise of agrarian capitalism. It forced those who could not afford the rack rents to sell their labour and to become wage labourers and to live in cottages without land. And this, in turn, led to increased mobility. People sent their children to towns in search of work, and we see the creation of a landless, migratory labour force. And yet, well, perhaps because of this, this was an age in which it became illegal to be a vagrant. And we see the division created between the deserving poor, children and widows and disabled, and the undeserving poor, those who could work but didn't. What contemporaries didn't understand was there wasn't enough work to go round. Rogue literature of the period says things like beggars lie and their injuries are faked and their poverty is a show. In the 1598 Vagrancy Act, it says that wandering beggars and vagabonds were suspect persons, embodiments of idleness, the mother and root of all vices, people of vile, wretched and filthy persons. Back in 1547, vagabonds, it had been ordered, should be branded on the chest with a V, using a hot iron. But even the Tudors thought that this was too savage to enforce. Instead, it was changed to the fact that in 1572, all vagabonds were to be grievously whipped and burned through the gristle of their right ear with a hot iron one inch in diameter. And this expresses fear. People were fearful of crime. This is an age when the soaring population led many people onto the roads in search of work 
and at the same time, respectable society began to shift in its attitudes towards such people from pity to fear. Arguably, I'd say the categories of deserving and undeserving poor have been with us ever since. People had in their minds that there had been a better age. The vision of a community of self-sufficient farmers was the golden, bygone age. And this is why Shakespeare's plays demonstrate a nostalgia for a lost golden age. The green world, the green space, the pastoral, rural world in Shakespeare's plays that's natural and pure and contrasted with the corrupt and corrupting world of the city and the court. Think of the Merchant of Venice, Belmont, where Portia is surrounded by suitors. It's presented as a separate, non-urban world. Or in Midsummer Night's Dream, the forest outside Athens has its own rules away from the rule of law, father and city. In As You Like It, we see a confrontation between the fantasy of the countryside and the reality of court problems. And this was so disruptive because this is an age obsessed with order, which was rooted in a sense of divine order. This was talking about order on a cosmic scale. Everyone had their place in a chain of being. God, angels, humans, beasts, all the way down to plants. Upsetting that order meant chaos on a cosmic scale. This divine order was thought to be manifested in rank. However, equal in the eyes of God, Shakespeare's contemporaries were not regarded as so by their fellow men. In the 16th century, there were sumptuary laws dictating who could wear what. Only those of the rank of duke or above could wear cloth of gold. Earls and above could wear sable fur. Knights of the Garter were allowed to wear crimson and blue velvet. No one else was. Shakespeare's plays are full of allusion to the preservation of and challenges to the social order. Again, Midsummer Night's Dream, we see that play within a play performed by the mechanicals, who are poor working men desperately trying to please aristocrats who laugh at them and mock them. Order is preserved. In Hamlet, we have the opposite. We have death as the great leveller. We fat all creatures else to fat us, and we fat ourselves for maggots. Your fat king and your lean beggar is but variable services. Two dishes but to one table. We're all food for worms. Hierarchy was also about gender, of course. Women were thought to be under men in the great chain of being. According to Aristotle's single-sex theory, women were deformed or imperfect males, whose lack of heat had kept their sex organs inside rather than pushing out as they were in the more perfect male. Women were inside-out men. And this remained the central understanding of the female body until the late 17th century, when Thomas Gibson's The Anatomy of Human Bodies Epitomised was published in 1682, one of the first works to challenge the concept of male and female anatomies sharing a common physiology. Aristotle also held that women desired men because imperfect things strive after perfection. And so the central idea here is that women were more lustful than men. They were the ones with the greatest sex drive. And so they were more easily led into sin, especially sexual sin. Women's bodies were thought to be powerful and threatening. The uterus was believed to cause illness, particularly depression or irrational behaviour. Hysteria and uterus come from the same word. And one common idea at the time was the wandering womb, that like an animal could wander within the body when not regularly filled with sexual intercourse and reproduction. But women's power was also feared, especially the power of their tongue. And this is what Shakespeare is getting at in The Taming of the Shrew. Note the definite article, not The Taming of a Shrew. It's a general principle. 
We've got that bantering relationship between the witty Caterina and Petruchio. He woos her and wins her, and then in Act 4 he deprives her of food and sleep. This is the way to kill a wife with kindness, and thus I'll curb her mad and headstrong humour. He tells her the sun is the moon, and when she agrees with him, that it's the sun. We call this gaslighting. And finally, in Act 5, Scene 2, we have her speech of submission to him. Thy husband is thy lord, thy life, thy keeper, thy head, thy sovereign. Such duty as a subject owes their prince, even such a woman oweth to her husband. And Petruchio is commended for having tamed a cursed shrew. But Shakespeare's never quite confined, of course. Kate delivers her longest speech when she's supposed to be tamed. And it matters, of course, so much how it's performed. If she walks out onto the stage with a black eye, then maybe we're supposed to agree that she has been tamed. This is domestic violence. But maybe it's delivered ironically. Trevor Nunn points to the fact that Petruchio replies, Why, there's a wench. Come on and kiss me, Kate. He thinks perhaps the whole thing is an act between a couple in love to win the bet. The most potent way order was present in society was creation itself. This is an age in which everyone, more or less, conceived of the world in religious terms. Religion was the warp and weave of everyone's everyday life. It determined the great events of one's life, the calendar, and everyone's final destination. There's been some interesting work recently on the degree to which it was conceptually possible to be an atheist in the 16th century. I think it was. But the fact it had to be debated at all was interesting. It's certainly true that notions of sin and salvation were pervasive. It was an age, of course, of religious change. Elizabeth I's religious settlement hadn't settled anything. Hot Protestants or Puritans wanted more change. Catholics wanted to roll it back. And, of course, don't believe that she didn't want to make windows into men's souls. Thirty Catholic priests tortured by Elizabeth I suggested that she was happy making windows into their bodies, at least. And we see this, of course, in Shakespeare. In Hamlet, the lost Catholic past is dead, but it's not yet buried. We have the ghost of Hamlet's father in the opening scene, returning from purgatory. But Protestants, which all English were supposed to be, didn't believe in purgatory. Hamlet wonders if he's a devil who abuses me to damn me, which is a comment on the Calvinist doctrine of predestination, the belief that God had preordained those who would be saved and those who would be damned, which had become the orthodox doctrine of Elizabeth I's church. In Act 5, he says, There's a divinity that shapes our end, rough-hew them how we will, and the special providence in the fall of a sparrow. And earlier, Ophelia comments on the hypocrisy of the Puritan who would show the steep and thorny ways to heaven to others, but reeks not his own reed, heeds not his own teaching. Shakespeare is capturing the moment, this moment of religious change. As James Shapiro has put it, living in the bewildering space between the familiar past and the murky future. It wasn't, of course, just how one related to God that mattered, but to the devil. Ordinary Elizabethans and Jacobeans believed utterly in the power and reality of the supernatural. Magic and superstition easily mingled with orthodox Christian belief, and the devil and his demons were thought to intervene regularly in the affairs of humans. People would turn to a cunning man or woman, a village practitioner of beneficent magic, in situations when they were carrying out precarious household tasks, perhaps making bread, churning butter, using divination to find lost goods and identify thieves, magical aphrodisiacs to charm people into love, remedies and incantations in time of sickness, things like burying or burning an animal alive, boiling eggs in urine, 
tying salt and herbs into the tails of cows. In the tempest, Prospero could control the weather, making tempests, though not, we're told, to do harm. There's no harm done, no harm. Not so much perdition as a hare. But magic was also maleficent. The first witchcraft statute was passed under Henry VIII and it was reaffirmed in Elizabeth's reign and then expanded under James VI and I. In Acts of Parliament, it became a crime to devise and practice invocations and conjurations of evil and wicked spirits for the purpose of destroying persons and goods and further lewd interests and purpose contrary to the laws of Almighty God to the peril of their own soul and the great infamy and disquietness of this realm. Black magic became a capital offence. Shakespeare's contemporaries thought the devil stalked the land. It is common opinion when there are any mighty winds and thunders with terrible lightnings that the devil's abroad, said a vicar in Essex in 1587. Satan was thought to appear in the form of a dog or an animal or a human. A Framlingham widow in Suffolk in 1645 said the devil had come to her in the shape of a handsome young gentleman with yellow hair and black clothes and oftentimes lay with her. This is a period when we see witchcraft accusations, prosecutions and executions increase. And we see this, of course, in Shakespeare too. The witches in the Scottish play intend to do harm and one comes from killing swine when we meet her. In The Tempest, Prospero's good magic is contrasted with the old witch, Sycorax, from whom he took the island, damned witch, mischiefs manifold, sorceries terrible. The most common witchcraft scenario in practice, as you'll know if you've been listening to this podcast for a while, came when an elderly woman, generally speaking, who needed support came to the door of a richer house owner and asked for money, funds, and was turned away because... At this time, everyone was struggling. They thought they'd done enough. They'd given money to the parish. And perhaps as she went away, she muttered something under her breath, and later a cow got sick, or even a child died. And the householder thought that they had been bewitched. Because turning someone away who needs your support is implicitly aggressive, and so that aggression was projected onto the other person. And it generally was a woman. Women were thought to be more susceptible to sin, as we've seen. It was women who tended to end up being poor and dependent on the community, often a widow or elderly, asking for alms when everyone was feeling the pinch. It was easier to believe she was a witch, even if it remained difficult to get a trial started. Witchcraft beliefs are all about this period of cultural change and religious ideas, ideas about gender and economic change and fear. Because this was an age of change, It's an age of anxieties and tensions and fears. Hamlet says plays are the abstract and brief chronicles of the time. The purpose of playing was and is to show, as it were, the mirror up to nature, to show virtue her feature, scorn her own image, and the very age and body of the time, his form and pressure. The very age and body of Shakespeare's time was one of continual mutation and change. As society experienced the birth pangs of modernity and moved from the familiar past to an uncertain future. As the holder of the mirror, Shakespeare reflects both order and disorder, upholding and challenging the circumstances of his age and human nature itself. And the fact that he could do this is what makes him transcend his age. But he was still a man and an artist, responding to the vicissitudes and trepidations of his own very specific age. And 
Thanks to you for listening to Not Just the Tudors from History Hit and also to my researcher, Esther Arnott, and my producer, Rob Weinberg. We're always eager to hear from you, so do drop us a line at notjustthetudors at historyhit.com or on X, formerly known as Twitter, at notjusttudors. And please remember to rate, rank, bestow multiple stars and comment on this podcast wherever you listen, including on Spotify. It really helps more people find Not Just the Tudors. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. History is full of extraordinary people, the Tudors being just a handful. In my latest film on History Hit, we meet Bess of Hardwick and go inside the incredible house that she built, a house that defines the elegance and grandeur of the Elizabethan age, a house fit for a woman who climbed to the top of the Tudor social ladder. To find out more about the life of Bess and many more fascinating figures from the past, sign up via the link in the description with the code TUDORS for an exclusive discount.